Good morning, everyone. If y'all would like to, you can turn to me with to Luke chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 31 through 35. And as it reads, right after Jesus had given the great parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, after the narrow door, these great teachings towards the people, he now begins with the lament over Jerusalem. And at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. And he said to him, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform curses. Today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And let us pray. Dear God, we come to you this morning, all gathered here to hear your word. And after we witness such great testimonies of those who come to you, Lord, such, to see the great witnesses of the beautiful blessings that you have for us. As we come now to hear more of your word, help us all grow more in our relationship. For those who are already part of the church, help us grow even closer to you and find the great joy in the God that is over us now. And for those who are not part of the church, have us all grow closer to you so we can learn more about the God that is above us and help us all grow closer to you so we can join the body. And as I stand up here, help me not speak the words that I have written on the paper if you do not wish me to. Have your spirit come greatly into me and help me speak the words that you wanted the people to hear since the day that Luke wrote these words, and since the time that Jesus spoke these words. And help us all to have truly great blessings in what we hear today. Through Christ I pray, amen. Never since the very birth of the Prince of Peace, he has been a target for many murders. Jesus was without sin, without evil. He was a perfect and righteous man. He was holy, compassionate, generous, and benevolent. He offered mercy and grace and the forgiveness of sin, eternal life, freedom from judgment, deliverance from eternal punishment in hell, and everlasting joy in heaven. Not as things to be earned, such as the Pharisees have continually taught throughout the Jewish history, but as a free gift to be received. Ironically, the one who called the very best in people to be brought out end up bringing out the very worst in them. Such as the first attempt was before Jesus was even born. Such when he was an infant, Herod the Great was the ruler over Judea. One day, Magi came to him to announce that the king of the Jews had been born, and they were seeking to find him in Bethlehem where he was prophesied to be born. Herod felt threatened, and since he didn't know who the child was, he irrationally and brutally ordered the slaughter of all boys in the ages of two and younger 
in that area in a vain attempt to kill Jesus, resulting in a mass murder. After years passed at the beginning of his ministry, he cleansed the temple of the merchants and money changers who were corrupting his father's house. The Jews were outraged and demanded to know what authority he had to act so boldly. And knowing that, he, and knowing that they already desired to kill him, he responded, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And later, verse 21 of John 2 says, He was speaking of the temple of his body. So even the people of his hometown of Nazareth tried to kill him after the first time he spoke in their synagogue. They were outraged when he offended them in their spiritual and natural pride by describing them as spiritually poor and similar to the ancestors of those who rejected the word of God from Elijah and Elisha. So they went to minister to two humble, pendant Gentile outcasts. Outraged, they exploded in an emotional effort to murder him by throwing him off a cliff. And as we can see many times throughout the Gospels, the religious leaders, such as the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, and the chief priests, they all collectively sought to murder Jesus as he violated and condemned their corrupt, apostate, self-righteous religion. In this passage, it introduces another villainous, would-be killer of Jesus, known as Herod Antipas, who was one of the sons of Herod the Great. And as we can see that at that very hour, right after Jesus had given these teachings to his people, they came to him with a warning, saying that they wanted him to get away from here, as Herod wants to kill him. And knowing that Herod is the one responsible for the death of John the Baptist, not only the cousin of Jesus, but even a close friend, and the man who had the honor of baptizing him, they would expect Jesus to be horrified of this Herod and run back to where the Pharisees had more influence. However, after this warning, Jesus responded with two messages. The first one is being to his enemies. The first message that Jesus gives is to his enemies. Starting with to Herod himself in verse 32. As it says, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform curses today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. And Jesus called Herod here a fox. And today in the modern world, it's tended to use more as a compliment by calling someone cunning or clever. But during this time of Jesus, the Jews called it as a term more of a reference of being crafty but worthless. The Pharisees had to be in complete shock. They just told, Jesus just told the man that had not only great power above Judea, the very place he was in right now, but also the man that killed John the Baptist. He called him a fox, being a complete insult to his face. Now imagine in the modern time, if we were to go to a communist country that completely rejected Christianity, such as North Korea, and some people came to us as we were evangelizing amongst the people, saying, run, leave this place. The leader wants to kill you. Now, how would you respond to that? <laughs> would you just say, okay, I will leave now, just completely run off? Or would you look them in the face and say, go and tell that pig, I will continue with my ministry here? If we did that today, we would know for a fact that would lead to complete imminent execution. 
And there are many today that would not be willing to do so. But not only did the Pharisees see what Jesus was doing as something utterly foolish, but they also had to see it as something unbiblical. There are many passages in the Old Testament that tell the people not to say any negative, anything negative at all to their rulers. As Moses warns in Exodus, you shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. And as Solomon spoke in Ecclesiastes, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king. So we couldn't do it before the people or even in our private places. We cannot curse a ruler. So what gives Jesus such authority to do otherwise? They saw him as just a strange teacher. So what, how could he possibly do that? Many prophets throughout the Old Testament as well were the very mouthpieces of God and were commissioned to rebuke leaders publicly, such as Isaiah and Ezekiel, Hosea and Zephaniah. But Jesus wasn't what the modern Jews and Muslims take him to be, just another prophet or a good teacher. He was and is God himself in the flesh. Jesus was speaking with perfect divine authority and had every right to speak of Herod in such terms. Because although Moses and Solomon warned to not speak of your ruler in such terms, how could you speak of your ruler when no one rules over you? The Pharisees trembled at Herod's power and wickedness, so they couldn't possibly be trembling at Jesus' bravery. And after settling such a solid ground in his response, Jesus continues on to saying that he will continue doing his act of ministry. Although he does say that he will do it today and tomorrow and the third day, he isn't saying that it will be the next three days that he will continue to do so, but rather speaking of how it is a limited remaining time in his ministry. But what is it that will cause him to finish his course? Death. Jesus knew with great certainty that he was going to die soon. But it wasn't going to be by the hands of some wicked king. Even though it was the one that killed his great friend and cousin, John the Baptist. Rather, it was going to be in a much more violent manner that was predetermined by God. And no harm will come to him until that his purpose is accomplished. He was to follow God's will. And Herod's threat could not and did not change Jesus' plans in the slightest. After speaking to that wicked king in such a brave and authoritative manner, he moves on to give a message to the Pharisees that were before him. Although he gave an aggressive response to Herod, he gives an even sharper response to the Pharisees. As he continues in verse 33, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Just as he had said to, the, to Herod, he must finish his course, he too told the Pharisees that he must go on his way. Jesus was truly committed to following what he was set to do. But why is it so important that Jesus must continue forward? As we today know that Jesus' whole goal was to die and shed blood for his people. How would it not be that he would shed enough blood by getting his head cut off by Herod, just as John did? Jesus gives the Pharisees and all of Jerusalem a very convincing answer as to why he must be specifically in Jerusalem to have it happen. As he says, For it cannot be 
that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And this is great certainty that that is the place that he must die. Although it is true that many prophets did not die in Jerusalem, such as Jeremiah, what Jesus is saying here is more for a matter of irony. Jerusalem was the very center of Jewish religion and worship. What Jesus is saying here is although the very temple of God stood there, it is more dangerous for a true prophet of God than Herod's threats in Galilee. Jerusalem boasted for its religious pride in having the former seat of the Davidic throne in Solomon's temple, but throughout the years they proved to be very wicked. They have become more dangerous to the very Messiah himself, all due to their wicked desires. And Jesus knew that he was the lamb to be slain in such a violent manner, but he was willing to do so all for the love of his people all for the love that he had for them, for the Jews of that time that are willing to follow him, and the people today who are still willing to follow him. Jesus had answered to Herod and the Pharisees with both royal disdain and irony, and the mention of his death in Jerusalem turned his thoughts to his people, represented by Jerusalem. So his second message in this passage is his message towards his people. He does it in three very helpful ways that truly show what he was feeling at that time. He begins it with mourning, as we can see in the first half of verse 34. The very first thing he says is, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Just those three words indicate the intensity of Jesus' emotion. The repetition is a familiar way in Scripture of expressing emphasis and compassion. You can see early on in, Jesus, in uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 10, Jesus replied to Martha's frustration, demanded that he ordered her sister to help her by saying, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. Then later on in this gospel, Jesus will warn Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And then much further on, after Jesus' ministry, he will warn Paul as he appears to him on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But an even greater example is much earlier on in 2 Samuel, as David has been overcome by the news that his son Absalom had died. After that, David was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? O Absalom, my son, my son. Why did the Lord mourn so greatly over this city, the one that he was set to die in? He described why through a matter of condemnation in the second half of this verse. As he called it, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. The people at that time knew that stoning was a prescribed form of execution of blasphemers. As it's seen all throughout Moses' ministry as set by God. And Jesus says that Jerusalem kills and stones Not that they had done it before, but they are still doing it at that time. 
Israel had killed the prophets of the past, was still doing it, and would continue to do so after his ministry, all because they didn't like what they heard. They took the literal word of God given by prophets sent by God as being considered blasphemy towards God just because it offended them in various ways. In the Beatitudes, Jesus told his disciples, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And in Matthew 23, Jesus denounced the Jews' religious leaders as sons of those who murdered the prophets and told them that the prophets will continue to come and will continue to be persecuted. And even though he denounced the people of Israel as evil, adulterous, sinful, and unbelieving, he also grieved at those who rejected him. So he continue on saying in verse 34, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? This pictures his desire to deliver rejecting Israel from divine judgment. He longed to protect them from the way a mother hen shelters her chicks from a predator. Christ's grief for lost sinner reflects God's grief. As he once spoke through Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God also gave warnings through Jeremiah. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains. And while you are hoping for light, he makes it into deep darkness and turns into gloom. But if you will not listen to it, my soul will sob in secret for such pride, and my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears, because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. And just as Jesus confirms, all, although God was willing to protect them, they are not willing to accept his protection, his love, nor his salvation. They would even kill the purest prophet, their own Messiah, as a matter of wickedness. Jesus then gives a prophecy for what they for what will come to them. In verse 35, it says, Behold, your house is forsaken. As we saw that Jeremiah warned, the people of Israel about, are about to have darkness to come to them. But although Jeremiah was talking about exile in Babylon, Jesus gives a warning of complete abandonment. Rejecting God's compassion results in condemnation. As Jesus is referring to Jerusalem as your house, rather than God's house, he's saying that a nation had set its course. The day of opportunity was over. God had judicially abandoned them. And one of the largest things that Israel did towards betraying God was when they built the golden calf during Moses' time. As Moses was on the mountain of Horeb, receiving the Ten Commandments, Moses writes, even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. 
when I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone, and I may destroy them and blot out their name from under the heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. God told Moses that he wasn't speaking of his people, but of your people, the people who belonged to Moses. They had lost their relationship with God and were now just a group of people traveling through the wilderness. And as God had called them stiff-necked or stubborn, he was saying they were similar to an ox resisting the yoke of his master. They had become what they worshipped. So they were no longer belonging to God. And definitely the highest points of Israel's turning away from God was their rejection and killing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Since that crime, the Jewish people had become under an unrelenting judgment. And it can especially be seen when the city and temple were utterly destroyed by the Roman Empire. After Jesus gave this prophecy as a matter of warning, he continues to give another prophecy as a solution. Saying, And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As he is quoting a passage in Psalm 118. And some may take this as what is a reference to his future triumphant entry on Palm Sunday as he came to Jerusalem, be littered down in uh, Luke's gospel. However, when Palm Sunday comes, we can see that it is not Jerusalem that chants this, but it is rather just his disciples. In fact, we can see on that day when he goes to the temple, no one is even there. Jesus is saying that you will not see me until they chant this. This is showing more of a connection of much further down in time, later on than our time today, a connection to the end times. What he's speaking of here is an, of, an event that will occur after his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. What Jesus is speaking of here is taking a form of a conditional promise. It means that those who repent from their refusal to acknowledge God's messenger and if the people receive the one who comes from the name of the Lord with blessing, then disaster and judgment will be averted, and Israel will experience the coming of salvation. And seeing how this is a message that was given to the people of Jerusalem of that time, it can be seen as to what Jesus is speaking to the people of God's church today as well. So for those who are here today and are part of the body of Christ, who are my brothers and sisters in Christ. We are in a nation today that is not too different from Israel in Jesus' time. There are many who claim to be followers of God, many who attend church every week, attend Bible studies, and try to remain as what is seen as good people throughout their lives, but don't realize that they are not truly part of the church. There are many matters of temptation in today's society. All are concentrated on desires of the flesh, it's a great warning our brother Vodi Bakken warns. 
Hell will be filled with people who are baptized, and hell will be, hell will be filled with people who don't drink, don't smoke, and don't curse, and didn't have sex outside of marriage. Because not one of those things makes you a Christian. Now, he isn't saying that it's acceptable to do those things if you are a Christian. But just because you don't do such things, it doesn't guarantee that you are saved if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord. There are many good people in hell, such as Gandhi, through although he was someone that brought such great revolution, was such a pacifist man, he was a Hindu and didn't see Jesus as his Lord, thus received punishment and forsakenness from God. And Martin Luther King Jr., he had such great impact on the civil rights movement, yet he refused to believe the matters of the virgin birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and saw him just another great teacher in the Middle East. And thus he also received the forsakenness that Israel received. No matter what you do in life, without praising Jesus as your Lord, it means nothing. As our brother John MacArthur also warns, the historic Christian faith has been abandoned when, in order to forge a friendship with the world, hard truths are avoided, vapid amusements are set in place of sound teachings, and semantic gymnastics are employed to avoid, to avoid mention of the difficult truths of the Bible. Just as Israel was willing to be influenced greater by man than by God, leading them to do anything from speak evil against or stone those who spoke the truth, the truth of God's word, our society is growing closer to that point today. But we must remember this. As we are part of the body of Christ, God has, has us protected as a hen protects her brood. Does this mean that we'll never receive negative judgment? Not at all. For the very first missionary, Stephen, was martyred not too long after he began his ministry. But what does it mean when he says this? What he's saying is that, as Jesus promised in the Beatitudes, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you, although we will be persecuted by the people in the nation, it will truly not be in vain. If there are any in this church today that are not part of the body, who do not truly believe in God, but are just friends to us here, Jesus' final warning to Jerusalem continues to the world today. Those who do not accept and give praise to him as Lord will not see him and will not be taken under his protection, as those of us in the church will. For a time is coming where he will return, and those who have not accepted him as Lord will be forsaken and judged as Jerusalem was. And as he warns in Matthew, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, the people who live in the world, who are influenced by the world and praise the world, will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This final judgment will be torment that will last for eternity. And how can it be avoided? As he will say later on in Acts, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. That shows the two sides of repentance, turning aside in sorrow from sin, and turning to God in faith. If you are willing to turn from your old ways of following your sinful desires, and follow the righteous Lord. 
then you will be taken under his wings for eternal protection. No matter your background, he will blot out every sin you've ever done. And then once he returns, you will be taken under his wings for eternal protection and prosperity for when he comes again. And once he comes back, you will stand before the judge, and he will stand before you and take his judgment in your place. That's to finish with a great word from our brother Paul Washer. Inside of, 20, inside of 25, 50, or 75 years from now, every one of you will see Jesus. Either he's coming here or you're going there. It really makes no difference. You will see him. You will stand before him. And if your name is not in the Lamb's book of life, you will be cast into hell. For those who aren't part of this body, I urge you to look into your dark, broken spirit and know that the only way to be free from this judgment is Jesus, for he will protect you from it. And for those who are part of the body, let us continually praise our Lord as each day passes, for every breath we take is a matter of his mercy. And all because of his work, of his shedding of blood, he has given us this great salvation, and we are under his wings and great protection that nothing else could ever provide for us. Let us pray. Dear God, I thank you for giving us another beautiful day upon this earth that you created for us. I thank you for giving us this time of fellowship, this time of looking into your word, this time of great remembrance for the great mercy that only you could provide. Have those of us who are part of your body keep in mind that this isn't something that is some sort of pep talk, just make us happier as the day continues and forget once we leave. But it's something that we must be remember something that we must remember as every day passes. Something that we are never worthy of, but something you were willing to give to us as great mercy, all because you love us. And for those who are not of the body, help us keep in mind this message that you were giving to Jerusalem, that there is imminent judgment coming. And even if we think that there is some way out of it, such as living a happy life that other people of the world may see as acceptable that if we follow the political views of the world, that we'll be accepted by others, that we'll also be accepted by God. Keep in mind that the people of this world can't save us. If we worship the world, we will become like the world. And thus, when you come again, we will be as the world and destroyed by you, but cast into eternal judgment. And the only way from that is you, Lord. And to you I pray, amen. Thank you, brother. Good word. Appreciate it.